The scripture text this morning is 2 Samuel, and we're actually going to be looking at uh, chapter 19, beginning in verse 8, and it'll make its way through uh, all the way to chapter 21. I thought it might be a good idea to help orient uh, all of us uh, as to where we are. You know, we've been studying for quite some time, and we may have run out of those handouts, and I apologize if we did. So maybe if some couples could share. This is, this is not intended to be a reference point for the entire sermon. In fact, you might want to fold it up and, uh, and put it in, you know, in your Bible for, for the future weeks. We only have about three more weeks that we're going to be studying uh, this narrative as we conclude the end of 2 Samuel. But you can easily locate uh, where we are in this span of David's rule of 40 years. Uh, there's a season of conquest, a season of Compromise, you see that in the color coded. And then there's a season, which is where we find ourselves now in this study of consequences in these latter chapters. And I decided to put together kind of a, a, a log because whenever you start to read a long portion and you're like, oh, yeah, that name and that name. And, and who does that connect to? And how does that belong there? And why are the why are the Gibeonites uh, doing that? That if we have a, maybe partway through the sermon, if you're like, OK, I think I'm lost. Uh, maybe this will be uh, because of some of these names listed there, a help to you. And for those who are listening uh, to the recording uh, at some point, uh, then, you know, I'll be glad to email uh, this chart that someone else uh, that drew up as the rise and fall of David. I don't necessarily like the fall of David because uh, ultimately David does not fall because not because of David, but because of God's faithfulness. David's response to that as well by faith. Our text is going to be found in the Pew Bible on page 270. 2 Samuel uh, chapter 19, verse 8. 1 King, to remind you over Israel, before we even get to this chart, or I should say at the very, uh, near the beginning of this uh, chart, what we see is, uh, you know, that there is a king over Israel, and that is a good thing in one sense for the, uh, the people, the Hebrews. Uh, Saul was a, a tall and handsome warrior, but his heart was not inclined towards God. He didn't love and serve God. God ultimately, uh, nor the people of Israel. He was at times very self-serving and seemed to kind of lose his mind near the end. A much beloved king comes into the picture, uh, and that is David. And he, David brings peace and prosperity, and uh, he's brought unity. He is the son of Jesse, David. At, at an early age, he's anointed to this office. He's part of the tribe. Remember, there are the, tw- the 12 tribes of, of, uh, of Israel. Judah is one of them, and, uh, and David is the son of of Jesse and the tribe of Judah. We'll, we'll rehearse this again in the weeks ahead as we move toward uh, Christmas and even some of the prophetic words considering uh, concerning a son of David. David compromised, as you see there uh, on the chart, there's at the very pinnacle, David's tragic downfall. That is that season of compromise morally. Yes, he does repent. He's confronted. Uh, you know, in, in God's love he and mercy, he's confronted by the prophet Nathan. But things will never be quite the same. He'll be forgiven, he'll be restored, but he will live with the consequences, much of which is division, not only within his own family, but also there are, as those last uh, you know, chapters 20 through 24 will highlight, there's troubles that David has personally, but there's also public ones that involve the nation. The division of sword that, uh, in chapter 12 that is promised, that is told through Nathan to David, doesn't just involve his house. Uh, it also involves the nation. And one of those is a rebellious son named Absalom, who is uh, vengeful, runs away and heads into exile because he knows that he was, uh, was in the wrong uh, and he was unjust in his actions. He is brought back over time 
And we see that Absalom, we read of this in great detail last week, is rather ambitious. He would like to be the king. He doesn't want his father to be the king. He wants to be the king. And he takes and he is persuasive and he is handsome and he is tall like his, uh, like, you know, dial in, think here, you know, Saul, uh, the first king, Absalom. Uh, is is there. So Absalom is conspiring to take the city. He steals the heart of, of many of the men of Israel and David and his household head off into exile. And uh, David is is being strategic. Uh, he, he's, he's leaving the city. He's heading. Uh, he's heading east uh, toward the toward the uh, the Jordan River. And he's in. He has to go into hiding. He does have allies. He does have spies. There are others that know what's going on. Uh, and his allies, uh, they know what David knows, and that is the Lord has favor on him. And, uh, and then, of course, we know that Absalom, uh, presumably because of his hair and his pride and his ambition, gets, gets himself in trouble. And uh, in fact, he's, he's riding on a mule. We read of this last week. He's riding on a mule and his hair, his beautiful hair gets caught in a tree and he's hanging there. And, uh, and the enemies find him. And Joab, uh, well, they, were, they were told to pursue him, but uh, David had made very express clear, I would like for you to deal gently with my son Absalom. Um, deal gently with him, bring him back alive. But that's not the case because Absalom says, get out of my way. I'm going to run this sword through him and takes his life. Joab takes uh, Absalom's life. And David is, Joab is one of those commanders, but he is known to at times disobey uh, David uh, the king. So we're going to cover a few chapters, as I mentioned, and I'm not going to read all of it. uh, But I'm going to try to have us read and then pause, and I'll try to fill in some of the gaps. At the opening of this chapter, David is still mourning the fact that Absalom has been run through, hung in a tree, and left for dead. He didn't receive a, a good burial. It's, it's a, it is a tragedy for David, but, uh, but it was his enemy. His emotions are so disturbed that it actually threatens part of his, uh, his very leadership. So Joab uh, decides to pull David aside in the opening chapters of, cha- of, the, of this chapter, 19, and say, hey, David, uh, you, you need to pull it together. Uh, we, we, the people need you to judge and rule and, and not be upset about Absalom. We were fighting to bring him to justice. Well, let me invite you to stand, please, in deference to God's word. And I'll read some of this opening chapter. Well, I'm going to work our way through the whole of this. So bear with me if you would. Beginning verse uh, 8 of chapter 19. Then the king arose and took his seat in the gate. So he's collected himself. David is ready to govern. The people were told, behold, the king is sitting in the gate and all the people came before the king. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the land of our enemies, saved us from the hand of the Philistines, but now he's fled out to the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? Verse 11, King David sent his message to Zadok and Abathar, the priest, Say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come back to the king? You, you, Judah, are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? Okay, so pause there. Okay, so David, wisdom would have it, is returning to the city. And he knows that that can't be straightforward, knowing that there has been a coup and a conspiracy and and an attempt to take him uh, off the throne. That he needs to be tactful in, in coming back. There are people there that are still loyal to Absalom. 
And so he's saying to himself, you know what? Probably be best if I start with my own tribe. I'll go to Judah and say, you don't want to be last. You want to be first to welcome me back, correct? Looking down at verse 13. And say to Amasa, are you not bone of my uh, bone in my flesh? God, do so to me and more so also if you were not commander of my army from now on in the place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the of men of Judah as one so that they they sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan and Judah came out to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan River. Now, another pause here. Joab, uh, is, Joab was the commander, but he's lost his post now. And David knew that uh, he was probably, well, we, we, we don't know this for certain, but he might have his suspicion that he was the one. Joab was the one who took out his son Absalom. So maybe that's part of it. Nevertheless, I think it's actually strategic and political that David says, I'm going to take Amasa, who was the commander of Absalom's army, uh, you know, part of the conspiracy, and just show some, you know, show some mercy and bring him in and have him be the commander in place of Joab. Continuing on, verse 16. And Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, uh, from Barum, hurried to come down and with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with 15 sons and 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and, and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king. And he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart. Now, some of you may recall that on his way out of the city, this is a couple weeks ago, as we read in chapter 15 and 16, David went out of the city and he encounters three different groups or three different people. All along, some of them want to go with him. Uh, one of them is a descendant of Saul, Shimei, this man who's cursing. And, and we joked about sticks and stones may break my bones. And this guy's ready to do the words and the sticks. And, and throws mud. And, he, and, and if you insult the king, the anointed uh, sovereign over Israel, uh, that's, a, that's a punishable crime uh, by capital punishment. He knows this. And what is his posture now? Now that David's coming back and Absalom's out of the picture. Well, verse 20. For your servant, referring to himself, knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord, the king. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David, David said, What have I done with you, the sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For I do not know what I am this day. For, for, do, for do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes. From the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, why? Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, my lord, O king. My servant deceived me, for my servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go out with the king, for your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king, 
But my Lord, the king is like the angel of God. Therefore, do therefore what seems good to you. For all the father's houses were but men doomed to death before my Lord, the king. But you set your servant, referring to himself, among those who eat at your table. What further right now have I then to cry to the king? The king said to him, why speak any more of your affairs? I've decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come home safely. Now, Barzillai, the Gileadite, had come down from Rogalim, and he went on with the king to Jordan to escort him over the, the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old, and he had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanim, for he was a very wealthy man. If you'll recall, that was another way. On his way out, David met this man. He had all these provisions for him, and he, you know, he didn't go with him. David graciously invites him to come back to the city, but he declines. Uh, then we begin to see that the tribes of, of Israel are divided. There's Judah, and then we read of the, the you know, in the south there's Judah, in the north there's Israel, and some of the tensions are rising. So let's look ahead and skip to the next chapter 20. Now there happened to be a worthless man whose name was Sheba, the son of Bichri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, we have no portion in David and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tent, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. But the, the, but the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from Jordan to Jerusalem. And David came to his house at Jerusalem and the king took the ten concubines that he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and he provided for them and he did not go into them. So they were shut up until the days of their death, living as in widowhood. Verse four, then the king said to Amasa, call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa sent, excuse me, went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the time set that he had that was appointed to him. And David said to Abishai, now Sheba, the son of Bichri, will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants and pursue him, lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And there he went on after Joab, the men of the Cherites and the Pelophites and all the mighty men. They went out from Jerusalem to pursue Sheba, the son of Bichri. When they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. Now Joab was wearing a soldier's garment, and over it was a belt with a sword and its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. Now, Joab is the kind of guy that is not shy about using a sword or a knife or any other thing, especially if your first name starts with A. Now, if you go back and read, uh, if you go back and read some more of this, you'll, it'll all make sense. But remember, Joab has been placed to, uh, you know, has been replaced, excuse me, by Amasa. I'm sure he has some strong feelings about that. But if there's a guy that's associated with David that's not, a, uh, you know, afraid of threatening people, Joab's it. So whether that knife fell on the ground by accident or purpose, I don't know. But we're about to read verse 9. Joab said to Amasa, it is, is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. It's just been a normal way of greeting. Not a bad thing. Verse 10, but Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow. And he died. 
Then Joab and Abishai, his brother, pursued Sheba, the son of Bichri. And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa was laid wallowing in his own blood on the highway. Well, to make matters simple, they, they, they set him aside. And a lot of people can see the, the blood and, and the gore. And it's, 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 it's terribly troubling. They make it to this city. The city is, is where Sheba is hiding. Now, they want, they want to take out, they want to take out uh, Sheba, but not necessarily the whole city. So they reach Abel, and they, they're going to mount against the city. And they, they're, they're beating on the door. And they've besieged it. No one's going in. No one's coming out. But then verse 16, again, we're in chapter 20. A wise woman called from the city. Listen, listen, tell Joab, come here that I uh, may speak to you. Verse 17, he came near uh, to the wall and the woman said, are you Joab? He said, yes, I am. Then he said to him, listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. And then he said, they used to say in the former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled the matter. And I am one of those who is peaceable and faithful in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother city in Israel. Why would you then swallow up the heritage of the Lord? Well, Joab answered, far be it from me, far be it from me that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bichri, has lifted up his hand against the king, King David, and give him alone and I will withdraw from the city. So the woman said, well, behold, his head will be thrown over to you over the wall. Then the woman went with all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bichri, and they threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city every man to his home. And Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. We're just going to read a little bit more here in verse uh, 1 of chapter 21. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, there is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king, this is the David, he called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, the Gibeonites, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, it's not a matter of silver or gold. They're saying, hey, this ain't about money. This is about blood between us and Saul and his house. Neither is for, for us to put any man to death. He said, what do you say then? What shall I do for you, David asked? Well, verse 5, they said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in the territory of Israel. Well, then let seven of his sons, this is Saul's sons, be given to us that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul. The chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, son of Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. Skipping down. Finally, David has to go and find. They, they, he, he does as he said. They're, they're hung for, for death. And then he goes and he actually has to find the bones of Saul and Jonathan who were killed at war. And he buries them and gives them a proper burial together. And then that famine is lifted. And we're told, it says in verse 14, that David grew very weary. And verse 16, it says, 
and Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze, and he was armed with a new sword, fought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistines and killed them. Then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go with us to battle, lest you, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After this, there was again war within the Philistines at Gob. And we go on to read that there was war that continued on. Uh, the Philistines, it's almost as if it came full circle. Sadly enough, David had defeated uh, Goliath of Gath. Now there's this guy, if you go and read, who's got six, fing- six fingers. Uh, well, I guess we have 10, 12, and 12. He had extra, uh, you know, he had extra phalanges. And uh, he, was, he was part of that whole tribe of the Philistines who opposed David. And there was war that continued. Well, you may be seated. Thank you. Let me pray for us. Father, would you grant to us faith, a faith that seeks you, a faith that seeks understanding. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Now, this week I was talking to Mark Rivers, who's one of our elders. He's uh, actually away there visiting their daughter who had a a performance uh, at her college this weekend. He talked about a story when he was a younger man. He was working at a golf course over in Easton uh, near where he grew up. And he was uh, working with a crew of guys on the grounds crew. And they had at one of the entrances, they had a, a, a white picket fence. And that fence, of course, on a regular basis had to be uh, washed and painted and repainted. And it was a, it was a labor intensive process. He and some of the, the, the boys hired, the young men hired, would be out there painting the, the fence white. And inevitably, some of the golfers would come along in their golf carts and their bags and they would make a reference to what? What story? Tom Sawyer. Oh, look, Huck fan Tom Sawyer. Oh, ha, 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 ha. And of course, it was funny uh, at first. And then it got old. And then it's the same thing over and over and over again. You just, you know, he can hear it. It's so predictable. Here comes that comment about adventures of, of, uh, of Huck Finn and Tom Sawyer. You, you kind of, I'm, I'm trying to take bigger chunks here uh, to wrap up our study. We, we do feel like, don't we, as we look at the life of David at this stage of Israel, that it's almost this cycle. And uh, it's very predictable. Uh, and, uh, and almost painfully, at times redundant, this predictable cycle in David's kingdom. But it was intended for our study and purpose. And what the cycle that I see here uh, is the, in the three chapters uh, are reconciliation, rebellion, and restitution. And that's kind of what's continued on here in these latter uh, 20 years of his reign uh, since the fall, uh, since his moral failing. Uh, chapter 19 is where we see you, it's listed in the order of service and reconciliation. Chapter 20 is where we see rebellion. And then there's restitution in chapter 21. And I just want to briefly trace back over these. Chapter 19, reconciliation. How does David treat his enemies? Well, some of you might recall David, when he was departing the city, ran into these parties. Now he's coming back in. And I'll just highlight because David is choosing to make Amasa the new commander of his army. It's an indicator that he's going that he's not going to deal harshly with those who sided with his um, his rebellious uh, betraying son uh, of Absalom. He knows that some people may be still loyal to, to them. So it's, it's, all, it's obviously part of also uh, a strategy because David is choosing to do that. Then there's these other, these other two that he runs into that I'll highlight. First is Shimei, and that's in chapter 19, verse 16. He was a Benjaminite. It's another way of saying he wasn't from the tribe of Judah. He was from the tribe of Saul. 
first king. So naturally, he's inclined to side with and desire Saul and his descendants. But he knows that he's in trouble because he, on the way out, as I mentioned, threatened and cursed the king. But David says, you know what? He cries for mercy in verse 19. He seeks forgiveness. And David grants him that forgiveness and says, not only that, not only am I going to just put you uh, at ease at the moment, but I'm going to actually give oath to you that this will never happen. Verse 23 again, that there's no chance that you will be threatened of your life. And then this other figure comes in. It's Mephibosheth. As I mentioned, Ziba, who was, a, who was a, a servant of Mephibosheth, deceived David, saying Mephibosheth sided with Absalom. So he's, don't even plan on him going with you into exile. Mephibosheth has, be, has betrayed you as well. But that wasn't entirely true. At least we don't seem to know that. Uh, and Mephibosheth now at this point comes back and he looks like the ultimate hobo. Uh, you know, and he, he hasn't taken care of himself. If you'll recall, Mephibosheth, it's part of my key figures you know, uh, you know, word guide there. Mephibosheth is that son of, of grandson of Saul and the son of Jonathan who was lame and, and crippled from, from childhood. So he, he, you know, when Jonathan d- dies, Saul, you know, Saul and Jonathan are dead. David says, I will care for this, this man the rest of my life. He will eat at my table and he will be my friend. And David was kind of hurt thinking Mephibosheth had perhaps betrayed him and gave the land to Ziba. Uh, to, to, his, to his servant instead. But now David's back and he can clearly see that he's been trying to stand with some measure of, I don't know if it was a hunger strike or it was a, a way of showing solidarity by not dealing with you know, his, his body, uh, you know, his hygiene as David is away. To say, I wanted to go with you, but I, I was not able. Well, he can't go back in his word. David said, well, I already gave everything to Ziba. To your servant. So you have no inheritance. And, and it's one of those moments where you see the wisdom of David. And it's almost, an, it's almost a precursor or an illustration of what would happen later with his son Solomon. Remember when the, woman, uh, the women are arguing as to who the baby is? Right? And, and, and they bring him to Solomon, who's a wise judge. And he says, well, if, you, if we can't decide who's telling the truth, we'll just cut the baby in half. Well, who's going to say, let's not do that? Well, the mother, the mother says no. And then we know Solomon's wisdom. This is who the child belongs to. And so here we see the character of Mephibosheth because he says, quite simply, it's enough for him. Look at verse 29. Mephibosheth says, let him have it all. It's it's just good enough that you're you're home safe and sound, David. I'm, I'm fine. I don't need I don't need the possessions. He says, I'm going to split it down the middle. Look, you, he can have it all. It doesn't matter. You're safe, Mephibosheth say, says. We see that David treats his enemies with kindness and mercy here. There, there's currently no strife that is, is ongoing for Israel. He seems to have managed to bring some unity uh, under his leadership. He obviously knows and shows uh, mercy to his adversaries. But there are limitations to his authority, his moral authority. And the sort of division, like I said, it's, it's, it's both in his home and in the nation. And it's brewing. Well, that leads us into chapter 20. And I just want to briefly recap that as well. It's, it's a, it's, the theme here is rebellion. And the questions are surrounding the loyalty to the king. Again, a Benjaminite shows up and he's a worthless man. Uh, this, is, this is verse 1 of chapter 20. This is a man, uh, Sheba, who is vigorously opposing David. Uh, he is very vocal about that. 
And he is identified as a bigger threat than even Absalom is. David is concerned. So he gets the men to pursue uh, Sheba, who's rebellious and dishonoring him as the anointed. But when they get far away out of the king's presence, we see another scene that's straight out of the Sopranos or Godfather. Right? Joab takes the sword and uh, it doesn't take two stabs. All it takes is one to, to disembowel. That's a great verb. Uh, to, to, you know, this is, this, is a, this is a gory, violent scene. He takes, his, he takes his life, amasses life. Joab pulls out this knife and takes his life. Then Sheba goes on in, into hiding. And, uh, and Abel, like I said, is this fortified city. In verse 15, the men of Israel are ready to take out the whole city. But the woman says, no. We're peaceable. We'll, we'll hand you his, his head. All of this marks some of the seasons of ongoing rest and division between now and the very end of David's dynasty. Everyone has their theory, right? We all know something's wrong with the world. And everybody has something wrong with their family, their community. Everyone has something to gripe about. Everyone legitimately sometimes, right? We, we all think about what's going wrong. and We have ideas and we have opinions. And, and Sheba's idea is David offers us nothing. So he is not the king. We don't always just have opinions and ideas. We also have allegiances to different rulers and different dreams of how things will be different if we have a different regime, a different king, a different form of government. There is much that is frail in the kingdom. And then there will be these reoccurring civil wars and threats. So there's enemies from without. I've said this before for Israel. And there's enemies from within. And that's true of every single empire, nation, dynasty. As long as recorded history, as long as it'll continue. I don't mean that uh, just to be pessimistic. This is very much a realism, isn't it? And we say, oh, but I, I, I know once we reach this stage or this type of, uh, you know, education or civilization or education, it doesn't matter. It still resides. I'll come back to that. Continuing on to chapter 21. Then there's this restitution. What's the king going to do with this broken covenant? Briefly, let's just look here. This is, by the way, not in chronological order, so it doesn't follow. We don't actually know when this happened in David's reign, but there was a three-year, verse 1 tells us, famine. And David's trying to be a faithful leader and trying to provide for the people, and there's no answer and indicator as to why this has persisted so long, but he knows that God is in control. So he's going to cry out to the Lord and ask, God, what is the cause of this? And, and God actually speaks to him. He is a prophet after all. And God speaks and declares, look, it's because of this broken covenant with the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites were, you know, just, just at the border. They were within the realm of, of Israel. And when Joshua, we can, we can read of this, and the conquest comes in, they, 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 they deceive the people. They say, look, we're, we're, we're going to be on your side. Um, and it, it, it's told that... Uh, here we are, you know, it's, it's actually in verse one. There was a famine in the days of David for three years. Year after year, David sought the face of the Lord and the Lord answered him. There is blood guilt on Saul and his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So it was promised on the way in that the Gibeonites would, would not cause problems and they would cover and they would, they would protect them. But Saul says, forget it. And he goes back on that oath on that covenant. 
So the previous king, Saul, who's now dead, committed this crime and broke this covenant. And there needs to be, as far as the Gibeonites are concerned, there needs to be restitution. Now, David seeks the Lord and says I, he knows where the problem has come from, but it doesn't say that he sought the Lord on what the solution would be. So I don't know whether this was God's will. It's one of those reminders. I don't know if you've ever had this in the Bible. In reading scripture, you go, <gasps> you know, you're kind of, you're stunned, you're shocked. And you have to go, what, what, how do I make sense of this? Well, don't make the working assumption that anytime you read something in scripture, that it is being prescriptive, Oftentimes, it is being descriptive and not prescriptive. So here, we're, we're uncertain. And even as we think about the gory details that follow uh, with these seven you know, men, these seven descendants of Saul, his sons hanging in public view for shame as blood guilt covering, that this is unsettling. There needs to be restitution. But if they were, if they were almost completely wiped out, what, what money could could provide that restitution? Well, there, of course, there isn't one. And David said, lets them make a proposal. Now, I don't know if this is God's will, but David says, how about you give me uh, an idea? And they say, well, we got an idea. We want seven of Saul's sons. And David says, oh, that, that, that's you know, how, how problematic he thought that to be. He, he decided to act on that. He knew there was one of those sons that he couldn't touch. Who was that? Mephibosheth, the lame son, he had, he, had, he, had, he had sought to preserve. So it couldn't be a son of Jonathan. So he goes and he finds other of, of these descendants of Saul, uh, sons, and he has them uh, brought up and they are hung and killed. The scripture says there's only one way to remove blood guilt, and that is to atone with blood. But to our surprise, it's a human sacrifice, which is not something that scripture uh, calls for. They're hung. In many ways, the consequence is, is just so, so shocking. But in some ways, it's actually not. And, in the, and, and not, not just for the Hebrew people, but for other nations. In the ancient Near East, um, it was known that when people made a covenant, when they, when they had a bond and a pledge together, that the actual verb for making a covenant is cutting a covenant. Because, and we've, we've talked about this before, in Scripture we see it, whenever someone would make a covenant, uh, two parties, to cut a covenant, they would have, a, they would have agreements and they, they would have, you know, statutes and, and ramifications for that covenant. But to, to ratify the, the, the promises, they would walk through two sets of, a, a, a set of animals separated, different sets of, of birds and animals set, literally rent it, you know, apart, and they would walk through these separated animals that were cut, saying and communicating hand in hand, may what happened to these animals happen to me if I break this covenant. There's a gravity. There's a severity. It's a big deal. And Saul breaks that covenant and he went after the Gibeonites, even though they were promised protection in that covenant. They call this, we refer to this as atonement. It's a, it's a covering of a person's or a removing of a person's guilt. And yes, God is, is merciful and he's dealt with the offense. But no sooner did the Gibeonites deal with, uh, with them that he also, the Philistines reemerge. There, there's this mention of the people of Gath, the descendants of Goliath that, that you know, 40 plus years ago, David had taken out. 
as the leader of the Philistines. You read all of this and you think to yourself, um, why can't people just get along? Surely, surely let's, can, can we just take a, can we just take a little time out here? Can we just have a little bit of Sunday morning daydreaming? Some of you may already be there. Uh, that's okay. Uh, I've been doing a lot of talking, a lot of reading here. But let's just do some collective daydreaming. Where is there a place? Where is there a place or a group of people that are so civilized and educated and morally instructed under the right regime with the right economics and, and the right, a place where there is no, there is no strife, no, no, no deceit. Let's, let's, let's daydream of a place where there are no corrupt leaders. No need for revenge. But we know that place does not exist. Past, present, or future. Even on a small scale, in, in, in your town, in your community, in your family, people can't get along. I didn't mean to say that with my in-laws in town, but... Um, <laughs> Here's another question. This is not daydreaming. This is the nightmare that a lot of people are living in. Do you know what it's like to live in a war-torn country? No, you don't. Most of you. Some of you do because you're veterans. Thank you. Some of you know for other reasons maybe you do for a season you've been in a war-torn country. Some of you have family right now in a war-torn country. This past year alone, we had two deep you know, conversations, lots of interactions with a Ukrainian family and a refugee from Afghanistan in our home, sitting down over, over a meal, learning about what it's like to live in a war-torn country. I, I, they struggle for words, it, naturally. I sure don't, obviously. Those are people there who are aching and longing for a a new regime, a new leader, a new king. But then it never comes and there's a brutality to it. Isn't there? It's interesting, if you do live in those types of times and places, if you're living in a war-torn country, things do have a way of coming into focus, don't they? What's important? What's real? What's a priority? Russian author and Nobel Prize literary uh, and author Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote in the Gulag Archipelago. Uh, he wrote a, a big, long nonfiction work. He was a fiction writer, but he wrote a nonfiction work. And he exposed all of the terrors of the Soviets uh, and their labor camp system. He, he describes all of it. This is a man who has come face to face with evil, you know, that is very intense. But he writes this. The line between good and evil runs not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. I've used this quote before. The line between good and evil. We love to say it's us and them. We love to say as long as we could get those people 
out of the picture, out of the way, and we could get on with the right kind of leader, the right kind of regime, and the right kind of philosophy, then we would have peace and prosperity. But if the line between good and evil runs down the the heart of every human, then our biggest, deepest problem is the human heart. We've said it before. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. Government, education, legislation, even a good king, even a great ruler, even a righteous one cannot change human hearts. The whole story of David and Israel, I think we would agree, and even watching the news has us longing for a perfect king and a perfect kingdom. And let me tell you, our kingdom as Christians, as followers, underneath his reign and rule is our sovereign. Our kingdom is not won. Our kingdom is not advanced by violence. It's not advanced by might. It's not advanced through politics and power. It's it's advanced in seeking truth, hearts. Yes, with him and with that perfect King Jesus will come justice and mercy. But it'll be through love. It'll be through sacrifice. And we get just a glimpse of it here. It's only a perfect king that can bring this about. David promised and his greater son, the promised Messiah, Jesus, when he returns, there won't be any hobbling around and fumbling and, and, and guessing and cajoling and hope. No, when Jesus returns, this is a story here in chapter 19 of David coming back to the city. When Jesus comes back to the city of Jerusalem someday, he is bringing a new Zion. He is bringing a new kingdom, a new world. And it will be perfect. It'll be perfect in wisdom. It'll be perfect in justice. It'll be perfect in truth. Something we can pray for. But God made a covenant with humanity. And we all broke it. We can point to everybody else who we thought broke it. Yeah, and that's probably true. But we, we have ignored the covenant of God. We broke it, and there needs to be atonement and justice. And if you think it's gory, that's normal that seven men are hanging up. In chapter 21 here, but we should think about the gory nature of atonement. And the people of Israel had a front row seat because they used to have to sacrifice animals and quarter them. And, and there was blood, and it was gory because you... There is blood guilt that we share, and it cannot be dealt with unless there is blood shed. And that's why we remember the cross of Christ. We know that there is one who has paid a great, costly. He has absorbed the wrath of God as a perfect substitute for us. And unlike when David returns, when Jesus returns, there's perfect justice, wisdom, unity, and truth. Why? Because he surrendered. And shed his own blood. The reality of a, of a suffering servant and a, and a cross. We are part of this kingdom because Christ is our king. It's a kingdom, my friends, that is unlike any other because it welcomes the weak. Okay? The, the, the church, 
The kingdom of God here on earth, the, 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 the someday coming kingdom, is one that welcomes people who are weak. People who have messed up. People who are needy. People who are broken. People who have got stains and sorrow and shame in their past. David was not wise enough and he wasn't good enough to execute a plan for peace and unity and justice. Our eternal king does come. Not with a sword initially. No, he said he would not win over hearts by might, but by my spirit. And the great hope is that we have a greater King Jesus, that when he comes and when people cry for mercy, like, like this man, Shimei, who cursed the king, he cursed the king and he knew he was ready to die now that David's assuming the throne. When Jesus comes back, when people, oh no, that will be too late. But until then, before Jesus comes back, those who cry for mercy are met with forgiveness. And he is gracious and generous to pardon. That is good news. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for the reminders of your character.